Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Herb Blank, all-round alternative data figure of interest. Along with being one of the first investors to use an ETF, Herb boasts extensive experience in alternative data since its very earliest beginnings and has a particular interest in ESG. In other news, please join me at Eagle Alpha's virtual Insight 2.0 event on February the 2nd, where I will be hosting an interactive discussion around the international data landscape. So in this episode, I am joined by Herb Blank, who is a bit of a familiar figure on the alternative data scene. Um, Thanks very much for joining today, Herb. Thank you for having me, Mark. You're very welcome. So, Herb, as I say, you have you are a um, something of a alternative data celebrity in some ways. The um, I, I would I want to say the largest alternative, the largest LinkedIn group devoted to alternative data is one that you founded and host and, and curate. Great to talk to um, someone who's who's clearly kind of steeped in the space and and, and has been in it for a, for a, for a good while. Why don't you just introduce perhaps? very broad strokes um your 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 career as much as as much as you like and then say how you came across alternative data as a as a concept and as a as a kind of as a as a as an area as a sector yes well as a 40-year quant one of the quests has always been trying to find and harness some source of data that is not generally being factored into the efficiencies of price efficiency Of course, one of the denials of the asset uh, management industry is that the price of most public equities is fairly uh, efficient. But of course, as areas of trading have gotten quicker and uh, sensing of trading and what is out there have have gotten uh, uh, more, uh, the technology has gotten better. It's been harder and harder to know uh, from the... uh, traditional factors, ratios, fundamentals, Graham and Dodd, Dodd, uh, the traditional balance sheet and income statement, uh, that just doesn't give you the value that the people who are actually trading and putting in uh, have for the equity. So what other things can you find to find out what the true value of equities is? And that's where the, the search from alternative data has gone in even from uh, 1987, where we're going through books to get such data. No. What kind of data are we talking about back in 1987? Uh, going through uh, the, uh, there was a Institute of uh, Corporate Responsibility uh, inst- uh, that was kept by the uh, IRC, data that was kept by the federal government. And then there were uh, s- certain NGO type groups that had collected data on companies uh, doing er- erroneous things. And we were running a, uh, a responsible investing, a sustainable responsible investing fund back in 1987 when it was called SRI, Social Responsible Investing, uh, long before ESG investing came in. 
That's that's wonderful. Sitting in 2021, talking about ESG back from 1987. That's a um, that's a wonderful kind of you know it's a it's a wonderful reminder that there is nothing new under the sun. You know, the hottest thing of 2021, you you guys were were, were looking for um, in uh, in in 1987. That's brilliant. But what kind of just to just to briefly dwell on that? I mean, ESG now obviously has a it has a a societal aspect which perhaps wasn't as prevalent in 1987 and it also has had a um has had a kind of an alpha benefit and as everyone has piled into ESG potentially it's, it's driven some of that some of that that those prices up and driven some of those those benefits what was what was driving your search for ESG data in 1987 what was was it serving a particular part of the market which was that way inclined what were you um what were you trying to what why why, why were you doing it Yes, I was doing it for a, a, a pencil uh, for a large Pennsylvania bank, their trust department, particularly what, what that served Elo Monsonary institutions, which basically is nonprofits, five hundred one c threes, those kinds of institutions. A lot of whom were faith based. In uh, uh, you know, uh, everyone knows about the no tobacco, no no firearms, no no drink thing, and that was it. But we also wanted to go deeper and investigate companies that were uh, being fined repeatedly for things like lead-based paint or for th- things that you know were harmful to uh, their clients. With uh, that that like tobacco had papered over it or had been fined, but hadn't uh, remedied it or addressed the public remedy. Uh, uh, companies that used asbestos uh, were, were pre- chief among them, like uh, Grace Corporation was stricken from the fund. And had you bought those companies in 1987, um, looking back with 30-year hindsight vision, do you think they would have outperformed the ones who were using you know the ones who weren't following best practice in that way. Do you think there was a um, a long term um, premium gained in that way? Uh, the only test I did, which was back in uh, uh, 1991, which was the last time I had privy to the the, the details. So for that four year period, it did uh, miss a, uh, a a a negative period in 1990 towards some of those companies, particularly Grace and Sherwin-Williams, but also some of the tobacco companies. That, in essence, in ESG, Mark, it is where the historical value has been found. Uh, if you look at companies, I'd, I'd characterize ESG in four ways. You have the, uh, the proactive, you have, you, you have the second tier of proactive, oh, these other guys are doing it and I'm missing out and uh, they're benefiting from it, so I'm doing it. Third is the reactionary, which is most companies that wait to do it until it's required by the government. I mean, reactive, which is those who wait to do from the mm-hmm. government. And the last is reactionary, those who uh, don't meet even the requirements from the, from the, from the government in, in, uh, in meeting their suitability, their demands, and doing things with, in governance and things like that. That la- The bottom 20%, is where alpha had been most found. Just take the S and P five hundred and exclude those the worst and uh, the worst of class, and that gave you some alpha and 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 better sharp ratios because it missed, it also decreased volatility. Whether the on the other hand, whether the most sustainable or the best practices companies get rewarded by the market is always going to depend a little bit about the cyclicality of the market and what the market is valuing at that point in time. For sure. uh, since we have a lot of companies finally 
who had held back getting into ESG at the same time, then the most sustainable companies were rewarded well, particularly from the period 2017 to 2020. And that we can see. But is ESG always going to, is proactive ESG always going to be a source of alpha? I, you know, my 40 years of experience tell me it's going to be cyclical. As long as it's not a source of negative alpha and you're doing well enough while doing good, I think that people who are, in that should be content and they should have a long-term perspective, not look quarter to quarter how they're doing against the FTSE 100 or the S&P. Fantastic. So we've started in 1987 with doing your own kind of research to find some kind of uh, ancillary information, which will inform your 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 kind of early ESG strategies. Um, take take have you got get so that feels like a specific example rather than kind of alternative data bubbling forward do you can you so you've obviously been working as a quant for 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 several decades um do you is there a, is there a moment where alternative data comes across your comes across your bowels in a more concerted way yes uh and it was also in the specifically in the environmental pillar uh, I had my consulting firm, QED International Associates, which was originally started uh, for my expertise in the ETF industry. I was the first uh, ever uh, ETF portfolio manager in the United States when I was with Deutsche Bank. What year, uh, what, what year is that? That is 1996, April uh, of 1996. I'm, I haven't read it yet, but I, I imagine that's going to be in, um, in Robin Rigglesworth's new book, Trillions, about the history of passive investing. Um, the, the arrival of the ETF must be, um, must be a landmark in the, in the history of passive investing. So you've got, your, you've got your rung on the ladder of history, I'm sure. Yes, and to, to clarify, Spider was marched, was launched by the American Stock Exchange uh, by something called PDR Corporation, which was a 50-50 partnership between them, the, the American Stock Exchange and S&P, uh, and then became a State Street product. So Spider and, was launched in 93 and MDY in 95, but neither of those products have portfolio managers even to that day because they were established as unit trusts and they can't change it which also means with no portfolio managers, they cannot lend securities and they cannot reinvest dividends. So here, here's a tidbit for the uh, for US ETF investors. If you want to own the S&P 500, buy new shares of VOO or IVV, not SPY, which underperforms by about 12 basis points per year because of these structural differences and because they charge a larger fee by legacy. Well, I hope those people have an interest in alternative data because that would have brought them to the uh, to the podcast. So. Yes. <laughs> well, I I got I have to tell you, in this day and age, alternative data has become a new thing for ETF investors. Vanek introduced Buzz B U Z based on the uh, sentiment indicators out there. Unfortunately, it has not performed well, and I could have. In fact, I did try to tell the product manager there that there are better ways of doing this because the problem with sentiment is is separating signal from noise. I had Alex Alex Denev on this on this podcast a, a, a few months back, and he was talking about the the potential uses of alternative data in in, in smart beta, um, and he was talking specifically about a portfolio which was, I think he'd done some research or, or it had been tried, I'm not sure. But there was a, um, a portfolio of, of car companies 
and they were weighted by um, the loyalty which was found in polling about the car companies. So the, the, you were heavy, you were more overweight, a company where customer loyalty was stronger, and and, and underweight where where it was less strong. Um, so it's that kind of use case that alternative data is beginning to creep into passive investing in that way, where you can actually be waiting using using alternative data. Is that the kind of thing that you're you're picturing with ETFs? Absolutely. I, I think they'll follow hedge funds in that way. Yes, I work uh, with a company called Brand Loyalties, and I've been working with them on and off since 2012. And it was using uh, their data principally, along with a couple of other sets, from which I had the first uh, article in the Journal of Investing talk, talking about portfolios that use alternative data. It was using alternative research data in real-world portfolios, and you can find that in the uh, second quarter, the June quarter of uh, 2019 uh, issue of Journal of Investing, and I'd be happy to uh, send a link to, to that to anybody who wants it. Brilliant. More broadly, um, alternative data is, has been spoken of in some circles as the the refuge or the or the or the the weapon which can be used by active management to fight back in against the kind of overwhelming march of of, of passive management and and alternative data is the way that active managers can can kind of can regain an upper hand and and find alpha which which uh, and and kind of you know regain their position. Do you see alternative data as being an active phenomenon or do you see it, um, you know, it's just started active and, and eventually the, the, the passives will, will find as much as much value in it as well. And, and um, you know, it's, 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 it's active and passive equal. There's quantitative active, which has been around in ETFs for a long time. And I find if you design an algorithm to do certain things with the market and make trades at certain times, to an extent, even equal weighted rather than passive indexing. Anything that's not cap weighted passive indexing and that has an algorithm that's going to make trades for you, to me, that that's uh, some form of active management. There's and there are some that are just algorithms which do things that active managers do or try to imitate them. That's the closest thing. Now that the SEC uh, in the United States has taken off some of the constraints they had on basket trading for active managers and allow semi-transparent baskets, uh, the ETF structure is simply more efficient. So anyone, any active manager looking to add alpha and wanting to, and having it on a fund basis rather than just a one-on-one -on -one institutional basis should very strongly consider going into the ETF structure. And that, that's an area of my expertise. Then using alternative data for your uh, for your advantage there is absolutely essential. You are not going to get an, uh, everything that's baked into the price, everything that has to do with financial statements uh, that are already reported, uh, it, uh, you are not going to get an edge on. Now, a lot of quantum mental ma managers, their first foray into alternative data has been some of these natural language processing uh, Utilities such as uh, Ravenpack uh, makes possible. Uh, I think uh, what was the other big firm in the U.S. that does it? But yeah, so some quantum mentals are using these things to try to um, get ten days ahead of time what the earnings uh, are going to be better than the analyst projections, perhaps by looking at some of these sites. So that's one way that. Uh, that fundamental managers in traditional groups have become quantumental. 
Of course, the hedge funds have been doing this for more than 10, 12 years, going through web scraping, NLP, trying to do anything they can to gain an edge uh, on investment managers for what, what's uh, for for uh, going through the price. Mm-hmm. So if you want to use uh, the traditional fundamental Oh, excuse me. Traditional fundamental analysis as a benchmark or a bench line for for things that are going on, so you know how much you know uh, the, the market knows that uh, is not in your fundamentals. That's about the only use fundamentals have anymore. You're not going to pick a stock well because it's undervalued or underpriced uh, relative to traditional metrics and and make any alpha on it. You're only going to earn negative alpha. I, well, I've got you, Herb, and and uh, and while we we're kind of um, we're still just about talking about ETFs, um, I uh, just a very quick question on this: um, Bitcoin ETF uh, is kind of a, it feels like news of the last month. Do you have a view? I do have uh, some very strong views. Let's start with the, the view on what is, which is BITO, the pro shares one, Valkyrie and Van Eck and, and I think Wisdom Tree also have very similar ones. They're calling it Bitcoin strategy. They're all the same. They're Bitcoin futures ETFs that buy the daily futures and roll them. And these are good tools for hedge funds, you know, who are trying to trade in and out on a given day, a given week. They have no latency and worse yet, they compound negatively. So they're not fit for buy and hold investors. Buy and hold investors who are, you know, really aching to own Bitcoin need to go to Coinbase or Robinhood or one of these specialty brokers that'll fix them in accounts and buy and hold them and then go through the vagaries of whatever exchange or lack of exchange rules they have and expect to pay higher trading costs. But if they're not a trader, if they're buy and hold doing it once, it's not going to cost them all that much. And if they believe that Bitcoin is an asset they want to hold long term, like gold, that's going to increase in value until, you know, at least indefinitely, then that's fine. I don't I don't have a problem with that, but they're not going to get it in an SEC security such as BITO unless or until Bitcoin uh, is approved by U.S. Uh, SEC and other legislatures, and there are a lot of barriers behind them uh, approving uh, an ETF that has unregistered securities in in there, such as Bitcoin. And the whole point, that Bitcoin and other other non uh, fiat currencies uh, and country independent currencies was invented was because they don't want to register them with entities such as the SEC. Let's get back on the alternative data train, shall we? So you, we we had left you and you were, so 1987, you'd first kind of been reading uh, social responsibility um, sources. And, and then into the 90s, you were still doing environmental things. When do you become aware of alternative data kind of as a phenomenon and as a, as a, um, as a factor that is uh, affecting, you know, the way hedge funds are doing business, for example, or, or a place where really there is a buzz and, and a place where alpha can be found in a, in a kind of more, you know, uh, uh, industrial manner. And, a, and, a, and more of a real time type of manner. I mean, the whole one of the major uh, points of alternative data, again, are finding data that aren't being used traditionally and as hedge funds have developed as a major player that rather than using, you know, in the nineties uh, and two thousands, it was, well, it's my expertise. I'm a great manager and stuff like that. And as that, as the uh, lack of uh, 
latency, if you will, of that had been exposed. Uh, they had to find other more technical, more systematic ways of trying to to uh, make uh, value added, and it wasn't easy. I and mean, they they really glommed onto alternative data. And I was first brought into it as a consultant to a hedge fund back in 2006. And then I was brought in for a company that was developing in 2006, a little Spanish company with three people at the time called Ravenpack. Nice. Who I've had who I've had on this podcast before. So you're so you become aware of of alternative data. How did it how did it how did it spread in your in your career after that? How were you how were you exposed to it? Well, once I had uh, Armando and uh, Peter on one of uh, my uh, 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 research corner things we did for QED International, I was contacted by Rich Brown, who was, at the time was with uh, Reuters, and he had developed NLP and, and software around national language, uh, natural language processing, which got, you know, in turn got used by every uh, firm and hedge fund he was with and is also today part of the Refinitiv uh, uh, uh group of talents and gadgets that are available. Okay. And so broadly, say so we're, we're kind of starting in 2006 and then broadly, um, would you say you've, you've integrated alternative data into your, into your quant work in all the ways as it's, as different forms of alternative data have come onto the scene, would you say that you've, you know, did you, well, did the credit card information when, when, I don't know, Yodley was, was, when that's arrived, did that come into your camera? Yes, it did. When I was with rapid ratings, when we were trying to quantify uh, rate, ratings out there, which, you know, had start, that effort started back in 1999 prior to me at 2005 is when I joined it and, and put some things. It was an Australian company originally before becoming a U.S. And I think it is the leading quantitative, fully quantitative ratings agency out there today. And it was, came a, a lot into prominence and use uh, in 2009 following the financial crisis. And yes, we were looking uh, at processed credit card data, processed uh, uh, Equifax type data. And that's where I first came across uh, a nascent organization's data called Glassdoor, which interviews employees and things like that. A, 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 a data set I've used on in multiple papers after that. What kind of data over the years had moved the needle the most? What kind of data, when it arrived, just blew the doors off in terms of the potential value that you could find? Was there, is there a data set which springs to mind, which, which has done that for you and for the market? Well, again, as a uh, risk detector, if you will, Glassdoor in particular, but a number of the uh, social uh, media things. There's another one called S-Factor. They are very good at detecting the landmines, the companies that are keeping things from their clients, that are playing the same fines year after year, that are have the highest diversity of C-suite from uh, line workers, that don't pay for training and education of their line workers, that don't pay that much attention to the OSHA standards. Those kinds of companies, uh, and that's data that you can get from uh, confirmation on the net and the direction that they're going on the net, I find is even uh, is very valuable. And then, of course, there's one that a company that I work with called Brand Loyalties, they call Luminosity, which is, okay, a set has a new mention of this company today. Let's log that. Let's log that. But they're mentioning a brand. They're not mentioning a company. So they have a big map that tra tracks brands to companies from 2000. So every time that brand is mentioned, they have it. But what they don't try to do 
and they tried it one time and found it wasn't helpful. What they don't try to do is go down there and say, is this positive or negative? It's sort of the old thing. If you spell my name right and you're keeping on, on a new site, then I have it. But the, the, and they also don't count, you know, 55 mentions of that same brand on the same site. They just look at the new mentions and what's out there. And that luminosity we uh, call the brightness of, of a company's new mentions on the web, that has had uh, implications, as you were talking about with the cars earlier, for brand loyalty, choosing between the car brands, choosing between uh, serial brands, choosing uh, between companies. It's had like a, 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 an extremely good record of saying, which companies were going to have higher revenue share come the next quarter, at least 45 days in advance. So that, uh, so that, that's another use of these data. But again, a lot, a lot of it relates to social choice, social pillar. And a lot of that is most sensitive in consumer oriented companies. That's, that's where you get a, a lot of it. It gets, uh, even the glass door type data gets a little more difficult in, um, uh, uh, B2B companies, uh, you know, uh, things like Caterpillar or things like Cummins Engine, especially. It's very difficult to get anything from the uh, alternative media like these, credit card sales or anything like that for companies that are B2B. That's where I see the blind spot of uh, what I've been able to get in alternative data so far. It strikes me that um, brand loyalties should have a, stri a strap line, which is that there is no such thing as bad publicity because they're just literally measuring publicity and it tends to drive the share price up. Is that what you're saying? If the, the, the number of mentions, almost good or bad. Number of mentions, but, but number of different sites that are mentioning it. And that's a little different because uh, a lot of that is coverage. A lot of that is orders. A lot of that is, okay, you know, here's, here's another uh, uh, search and here's another order. Those are completely different from okay. Fifty friends are listing this on are, are listing this on my blog site and saying that. And you know, I I hate the taste of McDonald's. Mm. But if yeah, so if there's so that's where if there's a hundred mentions in one thread about McDonald's, that, that that's meaningless, and that's the stuff Rep Risk looks at. If there's a new site that is now looking at McDonald's or looking at Big Macs or one of their brands and putting it on there and comparing it. Well, that, that, that's much more interesting. That's another engagement, if you will. Mm. Okay. And so this will be um, data that has been web scraped. Um, so it's, it's data which is um, every time a uh, company is, is mentioned on the internet, then brand loyalties will be, will be scraping them and, and, um, and, and creating the data set off the back of it. And what's interesting and why it's been a source of alpha, aside from the obvious fact that not everybody's using it yet, uh, they've got 15 hedge fund companies. I keep trying to get an ETF company to look at it, but it's not invented here with, with Vanguard and State Street and the iShares of those guys, even though I uh, helped launch iShares, but that's another story. <laughs> But, but uh, getting back to the, the, those data and everything, yeah, the whole point is as long as everyone hasn't caught up to it, those are signals that are 45 days ahead of the curve. And it's, I'll give you an example that they use that's pretty funny. Lululemon had an incident that got a lot of publicity where it turned out un, unknown to them that the yoga pants they were showing, sewing, uh, uh, selling if they, you get a little coffee or tea or water on them, they become translucent and see-through, which is not really what you want to be wearing. So you think that would be a negative event, 
But what happened was a lot more people who never heard of Lululemon or that they sold yoga pants before became aware of them and it actually helped double their sales in the next six months. So here we are in 2021, uh, almost 2022. Um, you've obviously seen alternative data through from from the start almost. Yeah, beyond the start is where, where I put the start. Um what do you what are you seeing what are you seeing right now which is interesting you what do you what do you think of the latest developments what are your what's 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 hot right now in for you in alternative data certainly uh, more and more uh, uh, things that I've seen that I think have the best chance of uh, really helping uh, asset not only asset management but society in general are some of these uh, companies that are putting out checks and satellite da and data and some of these new machines that will detect the true carbon usage that companies are doing that are reporting in the U.S. to the CDP, but it's all self-reporting. You know, it's like trust but verify, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, some companies are trustworthy and some aren't. So this gives two things. One, it's the, you know, the the damage to the environment, the sustainable, that's the easy thing. But it also gives a window to the social pillow, pillar, which I call the window to the soul of a corporation, which uh, basically will tell you how trustworthy they have been in their self-reporting techniques. And you think, so that obviously will be very powerful in the kind of the, the ESG space, will be very powerful in the, in the attempts to improve the planet um in terms of in terms of climate is that is that what you're seeing as being the the benefit is the is the ultimately the kind of ecological benefit i i think I, again i think it's uh it's twofold one is yeah the ecological benefit you know who's really best in that class and what's doing that but that's at a point in time right uh you're, you know you can't do that constantly the ones that are doing it now um and you get have to get permissions so at best they've, they've been able to do it monthly so, uh, and I think that's going to continue to grow and the demand will grow. But getting back to your question, uh, uh, Mark, the, um, I see it more, the, the bigger value. And again, I'm a big proponent of, of analysis of the social pillar, which has been most tied to five years return on equity of companies, not necessarily stock price. But I see it as, uh, as a way to identify companies that are, you know, uh, that that have been doing things they thought they could get away with and differentiating them from companies that want to do the right thing that are doing the right thing because that that's the way the company is oriented to do, to do best practices and that's a big thing to me the social pillar again is the window to the soul of the corporation if if measured correctly and looking at the right things uh, again another company i've been looking Closely at the data, I'd like to mention is S Factor Company from Canada. They're another one who've been around for ten years and all of a sudden are being discovered by people. Hey, what these guys said were right five years ago. Maybe I should take a look at them. And so, and for this ESG data, are you picturing the the best value being in that data going to the regulators, um, and so they can hold companies to account, or are you seeing that more? going to the, uh, the, the the market players who will pay for it in order that they will they will hold that company to account in the end by um, by buying their stock or not buying their stock but are you seeing it do you have a, a a perfect route in mind or are you just thinking it's good that it's being created and however that company is held to account it's it's going to be it's going to be a positive thing in the end ESG at the end of the day like I say the social being a window to it so it's about management quality. Management quality 
uh, for long term, not from quarter to quarter, is about being a corporate citizen that's going to maintain its marketplace by being good to the consumer, its intellectual property by being good to its people, and its global citizenship by being good to the planet. So it's all about uh, uh, being proactive as a company, proactive management, good management, as opposed to reactive management or management that just complies with what has to be done or worse yet than the ones that we've identified as the negative alpha guys, the ones who just do or try to get away with uh, even be, uh, lower standards than the government is asking. Well, uh, again, it is correlated with alpha, and it's correlated in a couple of ways. What's interesting, Mark, is that the ESG movement is moving two ways. One is just to buy stocks that are going to be good that are alpha, but a lot of it is also moving towards um, having more and more data they can use on the influence side and institutions and hold everybody and institute shareholder resolutions to improve the stocks of companies that have had uh, so-so or some semi-reactive management so far. So that's on the ESG side. Um, you are, as we mentioned, you're you're the you're the host and organizer of the alternative data group as a whole. And obviously, there's a lot else going on in alternative data beyond ESG. What do you see as the big developments? Do you have any any? big kind of broader alternative data developments for 2022? Well, again, it's always on the anticipatory, on future looking and ahead. Uh, a lot of it has also been on organizing things and testing signals. I see a, a big move towards relevance testing. Okay, we have all this data. What among it is re relevant? How do we classify it? Uh, is it industry specific? Is it factor specific? You know, what is going to give us the best of what's going on? And also, you know, in factoring signal from noise, they also look at, okay, these are the correlations we have. How many are spurious? How many are going to tune in? How many prevail during different markets? So a lot of it is being used to study study the past, but also get the future ahead of time. Okay. Who, who's we? You're thinking of the big hedge funds, perhaps, who are, who are rolling in data and are trying to pick through the weeds. What what do you think? Uh, what what do you do? You have any views on the on the consumers in terms of who is using alternative data? Is that changing? Is that growing? It should be growing, in my opinion, more than it has been. The people who are willing to use budget and try to try to to obtain the data uh, is every investment bank out there and most of the major asset management companies. But in terms of who can. Um, successfully integrate it into, into their um, search for alpha generation, into their search for uh, active management tools, into their search to be quantumental. That's been a mixed bag. Uh, there, a lot have, you know, put platforms on there like Raven Fact, like Open Fact Set, like, you know, uh, I believe, uh, yeah, there's one called Ensemble. There are a lot of people... Uh, Jefferies has one for their prime brokerage customers. There are a lot of out there that are sensing and allowing you to get these signals of sentiment and these other indicators out there, integrating it or, or doing something that makes your process as, as good or better using alternative data. That's a, t a tussle that very few of those uh, active managers and investment bank asset management departments have integrated successfully over any uh over even a three-year time period so far. And you're not hopeful as to uh, there's chances of, of uh, that situation improving? As everything else in our industry, Mark, the answer to that is it depends. <laughs> 
and I'm very serious about that. Nope. You know, it depends which one. And the other part of it is the devil is always in the details. Be specific. Who's going to do it when, you know, uh, you know, you try, we try to throw people all and companies and trends into one category. And it's, you know, obviously the hedge funds, they want to differentiate themselves because they want to be doing something that nobody else is doing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the minute everyone starts doing it, the hedge funds will lose interest for sure. It, precisely. Mm-hmm. No, but I, but I, but I see that as the market working in terms of the hedge funds are the kind of pathfinders, you know, they're the ones who are, who are developing the techniques, creating it. And, and because they're first, then they get, they receive the money for it. And then, you know, time moves on and the leading edge moves somewhere else and the rest of the, the rest of the market discovers, you know, and, and, um, and it becomes more mature as a, as a sector, you know, that's, that feels like the circle of life to me. That's exactly correct. Oh, I'll tell you another kind of alternative data. That's not as, uh, that's not web-based. That's been interesting out there that I've worked on some applications of, and this one you'll find particularly interesting actually. Uh, we've d- done a number of, of studies with the Depository Trust Clearing Corporation (DTCC) when once they got permission to use their aggregates uh, and could, and helping them to aggregate data that's meaningful to people. So one thing that they have, Investor Kinetics, they'll tell you which trades are being do- done by hedge funds, which are being done by traditional banks, which are being done by investment banks, and which are being done by RIAs and uh, agents of individuals. So in, uh, there are a lot of strategies that try to s- separate, you know, smart money from dumb money, mm. if you will, or smart money from institutional and that. And those that want to follow the hedge fund money, ha- ha- instead of having to wait for 401ks of uh, 401ks, 13F filings of uh, hedge funds, uh, 45 days uh, after the fact, they get to uh, know exactly what the, the hedge funds are, are holding as an aggregate within three days. So the depository trust, the DTCC, at the moment, just hasn't got the capacity to make that available, or has there been a regulatory change oh, which has allowed it's, it? it? It's available in pretty much every major hedge fund, I believe, as a client. Oh, really? But now it's becoming more widely available to other, to other, to to, to broader sources. Exactly, but the the uh, three ETFs in the U.S. that follow that strategy are still using 13F strategies for whatever reason. They haven't integrated use of DTCC DTCC data into it yet. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, the one uh, ETF provider who is doing that and talked to me about it, a major investment bank, basically said, "Oh, I think we'll do it eventually." But you know, budgets in a company like this, I asked. For, you know, for the uh, oldest 13F from a company called Whale Wisdom, and I got that data in, they're not going to tolerate me, you know, getting another vendor and another data set in here unless I budget for it for next year. Is it expensive, this data? These data can be expensive, but I mean, what's expensive? I think the DTC data set I'm talking about right now is somewhere in the $35,000 to $50,000. I don't think that's expensive in alternative data terms. I don't either. But remember, now now I'm talking about a uh, provider with um, an investment bank that's just got into ETFs, uh, basically with with the 1979 change of the ETF rule. Mm. So they're, you know, they're still uh, have to march to the corporate tune and the, what does a corporate investment bank do well you you can budget for it annually yeah of course of course um 
Well, that is interesting, Herb. You were right. <laughs> I did find that interesting. Um, but, um, but brilliant. Okay. Uh, and here's one. Let, let me just add one more study we did for them. They also have a product called Money Market Kinetics. Now, you wouldn't think offhand that Money Market Kinetics would help uh, in the equity market, but we put together a 10-year strategy, which just basically, again, it weeded out companies that were issuing uh, money, mar uh, money market securities to solve uh, cash crunches that they had. And we were able to identify an average of about eight to 12 companies a year that shouldn't have been in value portfolios that were in most value portfolios and would have saved those investors about 350 basis points a year. I think, Herb, that there is an awful lot of exciting things going on in alternative data. And um, unfortunately, we can't spend all day carrying on talking about them. <laughs> um, but I think uh, I think we could. If we if we, we could, then we could. But um, but Herb, I think this has been a really good, a really good kind of broad conversation about about uh, the past, the present, uh, all sorts of uses and uh, and types of alternative data. Um, so thank you very much for sharing your your uh, unique viewpoint and your wide um, your wide experience and, and understanding of alternative data. And um, uh, yeah, I look forward to to seeing you at many alternative data events in the future. I, you know, alternative data is the future. So you know, if you're not into it, you're not doing your fiduciary duty, in my opinion. Absolutely. I should put that on the, I'll put that on the podcast tagline, I think. Um, <laughs> brilliant. Thanks, Herb. Thank you. It was a pleasure, Mark.